0: So good to see everybody on this much cooler day. Praise God for the rain, right? Anybody wake up this morning, their power being out? We're the only ones? That stinks. <laughs> that is no fun to wake up to no power, especially when you got to get ready for something. But it came back on just in the nick of time, but I'm thankful for the rain. I don't care if we lost power. I'm just glad we got wet um, after not being so for a while. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 17 this morning. We're going to be looking at something here where Paul is in Athens, and uh, he is on what was known as Mars Hill that had all these false gods and idols there, that um, Athens being a culture that was full of all kinds of different religions and And gods that they worshipped, and so Paul is looking around at these things and uh, sees what's going on and and finds a way to interject the gospel here. So uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 22, so let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. It says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, And as even as some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone in an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the truth that, uh, Lord, you have here for us to, to chew on and look at and, and digest. And, Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would guide us in it through your Holy Spirit. And in doing so, you would instill in us a greater hunger for truth, a hunger for your word. Lord, I just pray that we would be people of truth in the midst of a world and a culture that is so lacking in it. And so, Lord, let us see it so clearly for what it is, God, that we are able to immediately recognize any counterfeits. But more importantly, Lord, so that we'd be able to live lives that bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here recently, I was reading the results of a study that was done by a group of sociologists where they were examining the religious attitudes of American teenagers. And what they discovered about their beliefs, they learned was just a reflection of the religious attitude of American adults as well. Teenagers have essentially adopted the religious attitude of their parents, And what they found was that the majority of Christians or or people in the United States who consider themselves Christian and many of whom even go to church on a regular basis adhere to a mushy pseudo religion that the researchers termed MTD which stands for moralistic therapeutic deism. And MTD has five basic tenets, which will be up on the screen here. Number one, it says that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And then finally, good people go to heaven when they die. This belief system here is so prevalent in the American church that I would bet that there's probably even some in here with us who may look at that and go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is, is that is not the gospel. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the message the apostles preached that got them killed for doing so. A few years ago, Barack Obama stated that the United States is no longer a Christian nation. And people, especially in the church, absolutely blew a gasket over that. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the truth hurts. We weren't really ready to acknowledge what was already becoming apparent in our culture. I mean, look, if moralistic therapeutic deism is what the majority of Christians in the United States adhere to, then he's exactly right because there is absolutely nothing Christian about that. The thing is, you can't blame really secular culture for this. And we can rail at the culture and the government all we want to, but the finger has to be pointed to the churches in America for promoting a message that produces this kind of belief system. Most American Christians adhere to MTD because that's what most churches have been preaching and teaching. Dudley Hall said this about the current state of the church. He said, The American church has married its message with that of the American culture, and the message is diluted to a powerless, moralistic optimism. Moralism basically says that morality, good morals, are the cure for what ails society. And it says, as long as one's morals, their behavior is in order, then so is their relationship with God. Now, one of the main things that has contributed to this from within the church in large part is just an incorrect approach and interpretation of Scripture. The core of the church still looks at the Bible as nothing more than just a guide to living. A popular description that we always hear is that it is an owner's manual to life. It fails to interpret the relationship between the Old and New Testament from promise to fulfillment from shadow to substance and applies every text in the Bible equally to the reader without taking into consideration the effect that Jesus has on a particular text. And when you blend that approach to God's word with the values of the culture at large, what you get is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Throw in some good communicators who are skilled at captivating an audience and you've got churches filled to the rim with people who are buying into things like the prosperity gospel and we look around and wonder how in the world we are losing our country the way we are. Really? So changing the right laws and promoting the right policy and voting in the right people is what's going to turn things around? Not a chance. Not a chance. Not when this is what the church is producing. Now, I sincerely hope that for those of you who have been a part of this church for any amount of time, that you would immediately recognize those five tenants as complete hogwash. If not, then I have not been doing a very good job as pastor And I would consider myself an absolute failure as one if the majority of my people, this is what they believed in. I'm telling you right now, there are going to be a lot of preachers who are going to have to stand before God and give an account for contributing to this. Having slaughtered the gospel on the altar of popularity and bigger numbers, and I do not want to be one of them. And so this morning, just in case there is any confusion about anything, just to make sure, I'm going to address this head on, and I'm going to do it with everything that Paul says here in his mini-sermon on Mars Hill, because it's so interesting or so neat that I was reading the results of that study and these five tenets of this, and uh, not long after that I was just going through Acts, and I came across this, and I realized Man, he speaks to every one of those tenets of the MTD belief. And so uh, I'm going to show you how he does that. Now, I just love Paul's approach here that he takes with these Athenians because it is quite different than the approach that he takes in the beginning of the chapter with Jews in Thessalonica. When he was with the Jews, the way that Paul pointed them to Jesus was by using the Old Testament Scriptures. And the reason why he did that is because they were f- very familiar with the Old Testament. That was their Bible. They spent their entire lives studying it and trying to live up to it. So Paul used what they were familiar with to point them to Jesus. But here in Athens, these people aren't Jews. They're just uh, heathen Gentiles. And so Paul doesn't quote any scripture to them at all because he knows that it would just go right over them. They wouldn't know anything what he was talking about. And so he used what he could find that uh, that they did know that he could then point to the gospel. I mean, there's a good lesson in that for us. You know, I tell people all the time, whenever you're witnessing to somebody, don't feel like you've got to know the scripture in order to effectively witness to somebody. Because I'll tell you this, if you're trying to prove a spiritual point and you're using the Bible to do that to a non-believer, you're not going to be very effective because you're trying to, to, to prove your point with something that they don't believe in in the first place. I mean, if you go, well, this is true because this such and such verse says it, the lost person is going to go, what are you talking about? I mean, you're speaking another language to them. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So we've got truth all around us that we can find in order to point people to the gospel. Got to be kind of strategic about that. And that's what Paul did here. Okay, so the first tenet here says a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Now, that's true to a certain extent. But where this is wrong is just straight from the get go in the first two words that it uses there when it says a God. He is not some mystical being or some higher power open to the interpretation of whatever anybody wants to define him as their God or their higher power. Compare that to the first two words that Paul uses when he starts his message here on Mars Hill in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples Made with hands. He doesn't say a God, he says the God. You know, there's a popular belief, even among American Christians, that all religions in the world essentially worship the same God, we just call him a different name. And that belief is particularly applied to Muslims because of the historical significance there. I mean, Muslims and Jews both. Judaism, which is what Christianity originally came from, Muslims and Jews both consider Abraham to be their father, the father of their religion, and Abraham worshipped the one true God of the Bible. The thing is, the Muslims come from Abraham's son, Ishmael, and the Jews come from Abraham's son, Isaac. And so they think, well, both religions are essentially worshipping the same God, they're just calling him something else. But that's not true. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one gets to God through Ishmael or Isaac or even Abraham. You only get there through Jesus. And when it comes to Muslims specifically, look what Jesus says in John 16. In verse 2, he says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Is this not what we see in radical Islam? I mean, they're cutting people's heads off and killing people by the droves. And right before they do it, proclaiming Allah Akbar, praise be to God. They think they're doing it in his name. But look what Jesus says next. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Allah is not the God of the Bible. He is some kind of demon Lord from the pits of hell. So don't think that those are the same two beings there, just called by a different name. No one comes to the one true God apart from Jesus. Next, it says God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Does God want that? Well, yeah. But to lump that in there with other world religions says a lot about why they think God wants that. Every other religion in this world says to do this, to, to have good morals, to be nice, to do all these things for something. Do this for blessings in your life, for a reward, for something in return, or for the favor of that God on your life. And that's how many people view God, too. And think, if I'm good, nice, and fair to others, then God will bless me. God will reward me. God will do something for me. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The fact that God doesn't need anything should be pretty terrifying for some of us. Because what that means is that we can't hold God in our debt. God will never owe anyone a thing. He owes nothing because you can never do something for Him or give something to Him that He needs. He doesn't need it. Many people have this view of God as like, you know, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. But that doesn't work with him because God doesn't itch ever. He doesn't need anything scratched or done for him. He is perfect in his infinite perfection and there's nothing that we can do to add to that. God's greatest desire is not for you to just be good, nice, and fair. His greatest desire is that you would know and enjoy Him. And if His greatest desire was just that you be good, He wouldn't be wanting very much for your life. You know, a good parent dreams big dreams for the kids, right? I mean, we want big things for our children. God desires a whole lot more for your life than for you to just Be good. Be a good citizen. He placed in you a heart that was designed to be absolutely staggered by his magnificence and glory. And that can only happen when you know and enjoy him. Look at verse 26. It says And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. He determined their boundaries, their appointed times, and the boundaries of their inhabitation. That means that he is the one who decides where you live and for how long. Your place and your time in this world is not determined solely by your own will, nor is it determined by random chance. Proverbs 16, 9 says, the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 says that there is an appointed time for everything under the sun. An appointed time for everything. Who makes that appointment? God does. For everything. Even the moment that you draw your last breath in this world. And then verse 27 tells us what God's desire is for people in those places during that time. He says that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He wants us to seek him. Why? So that we can know and enjoy him. Because only there is where true life is found. And tenet number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Let's jump down to verse 30 for this one and see how it lines up with this. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, the times of ignorance here, he's talking about the time in history Uh, Before God revealed himself to mankind through Jesus. Paul often refers to this in other letters as the time where the mystery was kept hidden from, from ages and generations past. He's saying, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should be happy and feel good about themselves. It's not what it says that all men everywhere should repent. Repent. Repent means simply to turn to Jesus and in turning to Jesus, you automatically turn away from sin and self. And in the moment that we do that, from that point on, everything God does in our life is to mold us more and more into the image of Christ. The central goal of life is not to be happy and feel good about yourself. The central goal in life is to look like Jesus. Amen. Amen. Unfortunately, the attitude of Western Christianity seems to be more about molding God into our own image rather than allowing Him to mold us into His. But look back again at verse 29. It says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Molding God into our image is what we do when we think that life is all about being happy and feeling good because that makes life completely about us and not about him. Telling you folks, God desires something far better for you than mere happiness. Happiness is temporary, shallow, and it rises and falls based on whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Rather than being focused on our happiness, God is focused and all in on our joy. You've heard me say this a hundred times, that everything God does in our life, He does in order to ultimately lead us into pure joy. And the reason why He does that is because joy produces in us what He desires most, which is worship. True worship springs up from a, from a fountain of joy. And unlike happiness, joy is deep and lasting And does not depend on whatever circumstance you're in. It remains constant in the good times and the bad. And there are many times where God may lead us into something that may not make us very happy in the moment. But it will ultimately lead us into pure joy. I've known several people, and I'm sure you have too, may have had a lot of money at one time and were able to live very comfortable lives, and then something happened and came along to where they lost all that, and they suddenly had to make dramatic changes to their life. That's not a happy kind of thing to go through, but those that know the Lord would always tell me that they are so thankful for that time because it allowed them to know the Lord in ways that they never would have had they not gone through that. It helped them to learn to trust him in ways that they never had to trust him before, and so that, that moment of unhappiness eventually led to their fullness of joy. I talked to people that have been so, so thankful to God for making sure that they got caught in whatever they did and ended up in jail or in prison. Saying, had it not been for that, I would not know the Lord the way I do today. You think anybody being locked up is happy about it? No. But there are many of them who went through that, and it ended up leading to something that they found far richer and far more valuable than happiness, which is a joy that is found in relationship with the Lord. On the other side of that, I can't tell you how many people I've heard who try to justify their actions by claiming that God just wants me to be happy. When people say that, nine times out of ten, it's said in order to justify something that they really deep down know is wrong. Folks, nowhere will you find anything in the Bible that says God wants you to be happy. But it does say an awful lot about joy. Don't confuse those two things because they are not the same. Believing that God wants you just to be happy is is an example of molding him into your image instead of allowing him to mold you into his. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to solve a problem. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul addresses that in verse 28 where he says, In Him we live and move and exist. That means He is actively involved in every aspect of our lives. Several weeks ago, we looked at quite a few places in Scripture that affirm the fact that God didn't just create everything and then just steps back and lets it all play out however it's going to. What we saw is how He created everything and He continues to be actively involved in everything that he created. Every aspect of everything he created from making it rain to not making it rain to directing everyone's steps from causing whole nations to rise and fall and turning the hearts of kings in his hand to making sure birds are fed and flowers are clothed in beauty. Every bit of that is because God is actively involved in every aspect of all that he has created you know, we miss out on so much in life, miss out on God when we think that he is this distant being that really isn't involved in everyday affairs. And I used to have this view of him myself saying things like God's got bigger things to deal with than being concerned about filling the blank with whatever's going on in my life. But realizing that he delights in being involved in Every detail just brought my relationship with him to a whole new level and allowed me to see him and enjoy him even in the smallest and the most ordinary, seemingly ordinary things in life and and being aware, more aware of what he is doing. I mean... When I viewed God as this distant thing, I thought that the only times you could really have life-changing encounters with God was on these mountaintop experiences like at youth camps and, and retreats and conferences or, or a special Sunday morning service that you had, that, that that was the only way to really encounter God. And I realized you can just encounter Him just as strongly and as powerfully and as real in the most mundane things in life. God's not only found on the mountaintops, he's found all along the slope and even down into the lowest part of the valley. You Just got to look for him. It's allowed me to, like I said, be aware, more aware of what he's doing and paying attention to that. Like if I'm at a restaurant, knowing, you know what, there is a reason that this particular waitress is serving the table that I'm at. God, what are you doing here? Is there something you're wanting me to say? Am I to pray for her? Because it's not a coincidence. It's not just random chance. God's involved in everything. Sometimes my wife and I will get in a fight. And after I calm down, I'll say, God, there's a reason for this. What is it? In me, What is it about my heart that you're trying to expose here and change? You just got to find him working in anything because he is there. And knowing that he is involved like that, coupled with the fact that everything he does is to lead me into joy and mold me more into the image of Christ, man, that is one of the most comforting things to know in this world. I mean, knowing that just removes fear. What's there to be afraid of if that's the case? And anxiety? Anxious about what? It just helps us to be able to engage the world with more confidence. And then finally, the last tenet. Good people go to heaven when they die. Look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, of course he's referring to Jesus there, but he says he will judge the world in righteousness, not judge the world in goodness. big difference between the two: his judgment will not be based on who's good and who's bad or who's better than somebody else compared to them or or who who is done more good things in life than they did bad or or anything like that. His judgment is going to be based on who's righteous and who's not. The Greek word that Paul used here for righteous literally means the condition acceptable by God. The only condition of man that God accepts is absolute perfection. Perfection. You may think, well, that sure is bad news. Because we hear all the time, nobody's perfect, and that's exactly right. Well, then there's no way for anybody to achieve that condition. That's exactly right. You know, so many people I hear say, well, I just don't see how a loving God can send good people to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. I mean, that's just not fair. And that would be a good argument if goodness is what God required. But he doesn't require goodness. He requires perfection. And there is no amount of good that anyone in this world can do that would even come close to the perfection that he requires. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. He is the only one who met that requirement. And for those who realize that they are incapable of meeting that requirement themselves and, and that he has done it and they trust that, then he offers to them his life, his perfection, Since there is no way for us to meet God's standard of perfection, our only hope is by getting in on the perfection of Jesus. We're getting in on his perfection, not ours, because we can't make it. I mean, isn't it good to know that being a Christian and being accepted by God is not about trying as hard as you can to be perfect? That's not good news at all. The good news of the gospel is that you can't do it. Jesus has done it for you, and he offers you his perfection. Man, that's enough to make somebody want to shout right there. Really know what it means. That's exactly what he gives to those who repent and trust in him. And one of the phrases we hear a lot in church in regards to salvation is, Give your life to Jesus. And it's also one of the promises that people like to make in order to to use as leverage to get God to do something for them. Like, God, if you will do this, I promise I will give my life to you. God's going, please, I'll take that life if I wanted to. The reality of the gospel isn't about you giving your life to Jesus. It's about him giving his life to you. It's his life. To you. I know that hurts some of your brains. Because all you've heard is what everything that you've got to do for Him. I'm telling you, the gospel is about what He has done for you. But I know what some of you are thinking, and that is, that can't be true because my life sure doesn't look like His. You say that He's given me His perfection, but there's nothing perfect about my life. That's true. But the more that you believe who you are and what Christ has done, the more your life is going to to start to reflect that. This is what it means to be molded into the image of Christ. He's molding you into who you are now in him. It's like this. If I set a big old block of granite up here, big old square block of granite, and I pointed that and I said, that's an elephant. And you'd look at that and go, no, it's not an elephant, it's a block of granite. But if I can see an elephant in this block of granite, all I have to do is chisel away all the parts that don't look like an elephant, and then you're going to see it. It'll be there. Did I make that granite anything that it wasn't before? No it's been there the whole time. I I haven't added anything to it. All I've done is take away the parts that don't look like an elephant, but there it is. If you are in Christ, that's how God sees you. The perfection of Jesus is there. It may not look like it on the outside, but from the moment you put your trust in Jesus until the time that he calls you home to be with him, God is chiseling off Everything that doesn't reflect that image. Amen. Sometimes getting chiseled on doesn't feel too happy in the moment. Amen. But what that chisel removes and brings into view produces a deep rooted, lasting joy. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, though appearing to be kind of Christian on the surface is the natural religion of a culture that worships self and material comfort. The only remedy for that kind of fouled-up belief system is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has chosen and called each and every one of us to believe it and live it and announce it to a culture that has been enslaved to a counterfeit of it we can do that. God's calling us and getting us in on a great adventure. Say, get in on what I've provided for you. When you see how good it is, you're not going to be able to help but tell others about it. He's so good. Let's pray. Lord, I just confess on behalf of this church body. There have been so many times where we have tried to form you into our image. To form you into whatever image that is convenient to our life. We have tried to mold you into what we want you to be. Rather than just allowing ourselves for you to mold us. And in the image that you desire. Lord, I pray that repentance, just an attitude of repentance would just sweep across this whole body this morning, Lord. So we just saw how that's what you desire. That we turn away from the idols that we have made. And we turn to Jesus. Jesus. That we turn away from trying to make deals with and, and buying you off with promises of grandeur and self-effort, Lord. We repent of that and we turn to Jesus who has offered us everything. There is nothing that we can add to that. Lord, I pray again like I did at the beginning that you would instill into us a, a greater hunger for truth. Lord, we need to be grounded in truth because this culture is so full of error and counterfeits and things that that may look like it, but yet there is leaven in there that is defiling the whole lump. God, I pray that we would be so enraptured and engaged in the true gospel that we would be the opposite leaven in the lump of this world. God, that the truth that we carry into the world around us, God, would affect it in such a way that that it transforms things. I pray that it starts in our own individual hearts. And then from there, it changes in our homes, completely changes things there. And, Lord, it spreads out into our workplaces, in our schools that we are in. And, God, it would completely transform churches. Lord, what... We don't need a revival. We need a revival. We don't want to go back to the way things were, Lord. I believe that you've got something new for your people. Something that we have missed out on for so long. God, that we're, you're bringing us to a rediscovery of truth, a rediscovery of the true gospel. And I thank you that you are doing that, Lord. That you have not left us to just grope around in the darkness and try to figure things out on our own, Lord. But you have opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And Lord, I pray for those who have not seen that yet, that you would open those eyes this morning and they would be forever changed by it. So Lord, we just submit ourselves to you now and the remainder of this time to to have your way, doing us what you desire. And all the glory goes to you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen.